On the 2nd of December, 1972, the Labour leader, Edward Gough Whitlam, was elected Prime Minister of Australia. Headlines read, It's Labour Easily and Massive Swing Puts Labour In when the rest of the Western world was electing Conservative leaders the likes of Richard Nixon and Wood Heath. Australia, for the first time in 23 years, elected a Labour government with a leader who had an unprecedented progressive agenda. His government instigated the first conception of universal health care in Australia in the form of Medibank which is now a hallmark for Australian culture. Removed barriers that made it difficult for women to enter the workplace and returned some of the dispossessed land to Indigenous Australians. I won! And it was euphoric and it was fantastic and everyone was thrilled and, and we all thought Australia was going to move into the 20th century at long last. They were convinced that Whitlam was going to change everything. For many people, Whitlam felt like a gateway to the reforms that swept the rest of the Western world during the 1960s that Australia had missed out on. This notion in the public was reflected in Whitlam's famous campaign slogan, It's Tough. Although he treated economical management and government like other dark ages treated scientific rigor to beliefs, both sides of Parliament to this day acknowledge the fact that Whitlam government played one of the most influential roles in establishing modern Australia. However, the Whitlam government is equally known for its triumphs as it is for its unorthodox demise. Then Governor General Sir John Kerr was appointed by Whitlam himself, dismissed Whitlam for failing to guarantee supply from the Senate. This happened only three years after Whitlam was elected as Prime Minister. However, the full story isn't in the title. This decision to dismiss was neither impartial nor independent. It was the result of minister scandals, direct conversations with the opposition leader, and a disregard for the role of Governor-General that brought the issue to a boiling point. The blocking of supply by the Senate was strictly a constitutional issue, although the solution mainly emerged from the contest of personalities. This podcast aims to educate you on Australia's greatest constitutional crisis. Over the next few episodes, I'll be reviewing and analysing the instigators of the dismissal, how a Governor-General, a leader of the opposition, and a Prime Minister all ignore so many established practices and act so irresponsibly. Historians and journalists often argue over who deserves the most blame out of the trio. However, no matter if you're a staunch liberal or Labour voter, or left or right, or just happen to be a dissent from John Kerr, you can't deny that each is responsible. It should be no surprise. It should be no surprise that an event to the magnitude and ramifications of dismissal still influences Australian culture today. Then member of the government, later Prime Minister, and now public commentator, Paul Keating, designates the dismissal as the beginning of political polarisation in Australia. Political polarisation has become characteristic of why so many feel disillusioned with Australian politics today. So I thought it was worth going back and examining the root cause, finding out why the dismissal is so relevant to today's audience. I'm your host Henry Tilly Swift, and this is Dismissed. Episode 1, Opportunist. In the first episode, we're going to be exploring the Loans Affair, sometimes referred to as the Kenwani Affair. It's often regarded as one of the most complicated scandals in Australian history, due to the financial logistics and extensive cover-ups. The Kimlani Affair involved a proposed $4 billion US dollar loan, aimed to finance a national reform plan, from which the government saw no loan ever been obtained, and no commissions ever been paid. However, the government did get a free I'm with stupid t-shirt video directly pointing up. It was an affair that would distance the Governor-General from the government, and see the exit of two cabinet ministers, Jim's Cairns, the Treasurer, and Rex Connor, Minister for Minerals and Energy, and the focus of today's podcast. Rex Connor, a door and intimidating man, was appointed as Whitlam's Mineral and Energies Minister. A starch nationalist, before entering politics he was a far-left winner associated with Australia's Communist Party. He modified his ideology when he became a member of the Federal Parliament. Connor's support to Whitlam was key to Whitlam's rise to the Labour leadership. Whitlam came from the right-wing faction of the party and saw his leader to undo some of the far-left-wing socialist ideals that made up the party's platform hitherto. Connor served as the mediator between Whitlam's vision and the very reluctant left side of the party. 
Awarded for its support and to appease the left side of his party, Whitlam gave Connor the portfolio of energies and minerals after the Labour won government. It would be in 1973 that Connor's true test as energy and minerals minister would come in his response to the Arab oil crisis, when the Organisation of Arab Exporting Countries proclaimed an embargo of oil. The 1973 Arab oil crisis sent a supply shock to the Western world, highlighting the flaws of being reliant on another economy for essential resources. Only one's own resources seemed to be a good economically long-term policy considering the crisis. Thus, Whitlam commissioned a report on Australia's natural resources, finding that land resources were being mined by mostly foreign companies who paid little to no tax. Whitlam wanted to reclaim control over and revenue from Australia's natural resources and named Rex Connor as the architect to realise his vision. Connor's plan did not fall short of anything of impressive and ambitious. His plan was to implement a number of natural resources and energy projects, including a national gas pipeline, an electric interstate railway, and a uranium enrichment plant. To finance such a lofty plan, Connor sought a loan. This loan would borrow $4 billion, a huge amount for 1975. Today, that'd be around $1 trillion. And if this loan actually went through, it would have accounted for 1 16th of Australia's GDP. Connor would not follow standard procedure. Instead of getting the loan as previous Australian loans have been acquired through orthodox European or American financial dealers, Connor instead searched for a Middle Eastern loan. The Middle East at the time was awash with its currency, the petrodollars, which had heavily depreciated following the quadrupling of oil prices in 1973 and 1974, making a Middle Eastern loan a strategic decision. Now, the way that Connor met his financial dealer would not be the way that one would expect a senior minister of the government to meet a financial dealer for whom the government was going to make an exuberant fund which a national reform would be dependent on. Nevertheless, Connor met Kim Lally for at least three degrees of separation via Clive Cameron, Federal Minister for Labour, a former Adelaide businessman, Caritas, and contacts of Caritas in Hong Kong and Sudan. Connor was introduced to a London-based commodities trailer, Kimath Kimlani. Kimlani was described by Australian political journalist Mungo Mercat as a clearly shady man. Kimlani owned a London-based company, Delamons & Son, a newly formed commodities business with just a capital of £100. Yet, that didn't stop the inexperienced and mysterious financial broker from promising Rex Connor a $4 billion loan. Kimlani and Connor were now in talks. According to Kimlani, Connor asked for a 20-year loan with an interest at 7.7% and a range of commission for Kimlani of 2.5%. As you're probably gathering by now, this loan was unusual for several reasons. Other than the pre-mentioned source and amount of the loan, the whole method for obtaining the loan was counterintuitive for the purpose of the project that the loan was financing. For you see, when a project of this scale and cost is undertaken, governments often attach foreign investment and ultimately a business partnership. Thereby, the foreign investor would retain partial ownership and all rights over the resources once the project is completed. However, the whole point of the project was to take foreign ownership out of Australian-owned resources. So of course this option was rejected by Connor, who had a desire for Australian resources to be controlled and owned by Australians. Another reason why this loan was odd was that Rex was the Minister for Energies and Minerals, not the Treasurer. It seemed odd that Rex was raising a loan independent of the Treasury, let alone such an abnormal large loan. But to make this loan official, Connor needed to go through two bodies. The first was the Loan Council. The Loan Council is a body in which states act to authorise government loans. 
At the time, four of the six states were non-labour and would have almost certainly vetoed the loan, mainly for political reasons, but justifiable ones considering Ken Wadi's shady character. It was a requirement written in the Australian Constitution that non-temporary government borrowings must be approved by the Loan Council. Connor circumvented this. Now, there's still legitimate debate today that it was legal for Connor to ignore the Loans Council. The loan was defined for temporary purposes, which would be very contestable, as it was over 20 years and for large projects. Declaring the loan temporary meant that the government could avoid the loan council and parliamentary scrutiny. Jim Cairns, the treasurer, whom now Connor was consulting, had been sceptical about the Kenwani proposal from the start. He said it was foolish to hide it from the states and would come back to bite the government. He was ignored, and spoiler alert, wasn't wrong. Connor did seek the legal authority for the loan for another body, the Executive Council. The Executive Council is a body presided over by the Governor-General consisted of ministers, which gives legal form to cabinet decisions. One night Whitlam, Connor, Cairns and the Attorney General, Lyon Murphy, held the Executive Council meeting needed to give the legal authority to the loan. The upper three empowered Connor to borrow up to four billion for temporary purposes. One person was missing at this meeting, the Governor-General. It was customary for the Governor-General to be present at such things, however he did sign the minutes the next day. When the loan received legal status, neither Kerr nor Cairns had any idea of the identity of the lenders or where the money was actually being held. Nonetheless, the government drafted a letter of acceptance, which Kerr gave to Kimwani. And surprise, Kimwani's behaviour only grew more suspicious. He asked to have clauses in the documentation relating to his commission changed. He insisted on a show of strength from the government in the form of a firm deal that he could take to his mysterious moneylenders. Treasury speculated that his aim was to extract his commission if the government was ever to pull out of any deal. Now that all the legal hurdles had been jumped over, the pressure was now on Kenwani to produce results. To stop things tipping over, Kenwani gave Connor a false sense of hope. He told Connor that the lenders were four separate emirates and that the money was being held in nine primary European banks. The Union Bank of Switzerland would be the post office from which the money was collected. The promise he would deliver the loan within a single month, that was later amended to six. As the months went by and no way was heard from Kenwadi, the Executive Council eventually grew wise and revoked Connor's authority to raise the loan. However, he continued to try and raise it without the Prime Minister's knowledge. This caused Whitlam to unknowingly mislead Parliament when he was asked whether or not the loan was still being sorted. Rex Connor became rightfully paranoid. Paul Keating, who was at the time his assistant minister, recalled Connor being in a frantic and desperate mental state. Connor would even eventually take to sleeping in his own office right next to the fax machine. Whenever a fax would come through, Connor would dash to it, only for his hopes to be deflated as he would soon realise it wasn't from Kenwadi. Keating was appalled by Connor's management and preempted the Australian public when he said to Connor, Rex, this is no way for a minister of the cabinet to behave. Doomsday came. On the 22nd of December, Rex Connor conceded that the loan was never coming. He sent a fax to the bank in Switzerland and a somewhat justifiably sharper version to Kenwani, saying that the post had been, quote, examined by the Australian government, which had decided in the light of information now available to it that it would not further pursue the matter, end quote. The government had been scammed. When Kimwani eventually called months later, it wasn't to the government, but to the federal opposition, selling the details of his negotiations as ammunition against the government. The Malcolm Fraser-led opposition made the loans affair public, embarrassing the Whitlam government and exposing its claims to impropriety. One disillusioned ALP voter at the time of the loans affair, coming public, described her frustration to government as a failure of management. She said that the government had visionary great policy ideas, 
terrible execution. When the loans affair became public, Kerr became embarrassed that he signed off on the minutes and resented not being invited to the meeting in the first place. Kim it felt like Whitlam was negating his authority. Kurt already felt alienated by Whitlam. This move only confirmed that point of view. Although it's important to note that it wasn't Whitlam's intention to alienate Kerr, Whitlam just didn't hold the Governor General in the same importance as Kerr did. This led to perhaps one of the most damaging miscommunications in Australian political history. The opposition leader, Malcolm Fraser, used the loans affair as a justification to block supply acts passing through the Liberal-controlled Senate. Calling the loans affair extraordinary and reprehensible, Fraser wanted Whitlam to call an early election, as the contemporary polls favoured the opposition. Now with a hostile Senate, pressure was mounting for Whitlam to call a double dissolution. A double dissolution is a mechanism available to Prime Ministers in the case where the Senate refuses to pass acts. This mechanism sends both houses to an early election. Whitlam, now politically damaged by the loans affair, sacked Connor from the cabinet for misleading parliament. In a 2015 interview with the ABC, Rex Connor's grandchild, Chris Connor, revealed Rex's mental state in the aftermath of the loans affair. Quote, what I saw after the dismissal was a man who was broken. His dreams were broken, his opportunity was now lost. End quote. This has been dismissed, episode one, Opportunist. In the next episode, we're going to be looking at Jim Cairns, who had a loans affair of his own. We'll also be exploring John Kerr as a governor general and a person. Thank you so much for listening. This has been my very first podcast ever, and um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much and learnt as much as I have through the process of writing it. I've enjoyed less um, recording it. As you can probably tell, my mic's not great. It's been this $40 little headset mic that I got, and it's not like a proper microphone that most podcasters do use, so I apologise for that, for some perhaps inaudible audio, but I really hope you've taken away something meaningful and learnt a lot. And if you do know one or two things about the dismissal and have noticed um, an historical inaccuracy in this podcast, I highly encourage you to send an email to me at henryts.iinet.net.au. And in the next show, I'll highlight what I might have gone wrong. The last thing I want to do is spread misinformation in this day and age, so that would be very much appreciated. Now, of course, any production worth anything will have some help from some people. First off, I'd like to acknowledge my history consultant and script supervisor, Isaac Teeley Swift. He has one of the most brilliant intellects I know and an extensive knowledge of Australian political history. So he was a real asset to this podcast, and thank you very much, Isaac, for doing that. He did it completely free. He wasn't paid or anything. It was our completely his own um, commitment to accuracy and the humanities, so thank you. Finally, I'd like to thank the inspiration for this podcast, Slow Burn. It's another podcast on American history and scandals, and I would highly recommend you check it out if you haven't already. This concludes the first ever episode of Dismissed, and is there any better way to end a historical educational podcast on dismissal than to say... You are dismissed. Thank you. This podcast has been written, produced, and hosted by Henry Tilly Swift. Hope to see you next episode.